Hello, I'm Hannah Critchlow reporting from Washington DC for this special Naked Neuroscience podcast in partnership with the International Neuroethics Society. We'll be taking a journey into the future to explore how brain findings may shape our future society. Last year, both the US and European Union announced investments of over £1 billion in research attempting to understand how our brains work. A similar level of funding was injected over a decade ago for the sequencing of the human genome. With the new information comes ethical issues on how to use it. In the case of the human genome, companies filed patents for the intellectual property of our genes. Insurance companies proposed premium prices for those carrying genes predisposing to disease. And governments are using our data for their research. As this decade kickstarts the era of the brain, cash injections will bring a revolution in neurotechnology that will allow us to peer into the human brain as never before and to understand and manipulate our behaviour. Who will own that data and how should we use the information? In Washington DC, just around the corner from the White House, the International Neuroethics Society hosted their 2014 meeting to discuss these issues and more. In this special Naked Neuroscience series, supported by the Wellcome Trust, I'm reporting from the meeting to explore how brain findings may shape our future society. In this episode, we meet the congressman responsible for setting neuroscience on the top of the American political agenda. On the brain side, we're almost nowhere. Unlike other medical research, only 1% of what will work in an animal circumstance will work in a human being when we come to deal with brain illnesses. So the research doesn't translate well. In other areas, about 50% of the research, animal to human, translates. Where people see success, they're willing to invest more. And that's part of the challenge is that we have to be prepared to invest and fail in order to be able to invest and succeed. Ask the man heading the European Human Brain Project, is this brain mission akin to a space race competition or will countries work collaboratively? There's no time for competition in the brain. There's time for collaboration. Collaboration is essential. The problem is too vast, too complex, it's too diverse that we cannot afford to approach the brain in isolation, in a silo. And we discuss the ethics of using these new neurotechnologies, including the example of a man who used the new treatment for depression of electric brain stimulation, and he developed an unintended side effect and was constantly electrifying his brain. The device becomes an addictive stimulation to the brain. So cocaine, narcotics, they are addictive because they affect certain brain structures. And so one issue with brain stimulation is that there may actually be effects that were unanticipated. And so a contract between the patient and the physician, I think, is very important. All to come. I first met Congressman Shaka Fatah, who is responsible for initiating this investment in brain research in the state. I think it's critically important that we seize the moment to grapple with some of the 600 plus diseases and disorders of the brain. We have over 50 million Americans suffering from everything from Alzheimer's to epilepsy, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, you go through the laundry list. We need to make more progress to improve the life chances of these Americans. That's the impulse for my work. We want to make a difference and I believe that we will. America has raised over 200 million Great British pounds or the equivalent of that in dollars for the Brain Initiative. 
Who is investing in this and what will the money be spent on? What's the ultimate goal? Well, we have a multifaceted effort, right? So we have the brain initiative, which is about mapping the brain. But in truth, it's about developing tools, developing the technology to help us understand how the brain actually functions. We today can't even tell you the actual number of cells in the brain. We have very little idea about the interconnectedness in the sections of the brain. We have a lot of work to do. This new effort about mapping the brain, this is the first time we're taking on the initiative are really trying to understand the brain, how a healthy brain should function. And you describe the brain as one of the final frontiers in scientific research. And so you're going to be helping to invest in technologies that will allow us to peer between the space between our ears. So the Human Genome Project is a really good example of big investment. So 1.5 billion British pounds were invested in this in order to sequence the human genome. And this was completed, well, the first draft was completed a decade ago. How has that translated into treatments for humans. How has that helped society? It's extraordinary. The uh, human genome is a good example in which government investment, it took almost three billion dollars to be able to do it, right? But now we're at a point where for about a thousand dollars you can have your own genes analyzed and know what may be some of the ways to go about dealing with disease in your own body and it revolutionized medicine. One of the interesting things about human genome is that that started in our Department of Energy. It didn't start in the National Institute of Health. They said, oh, that's not a great idea. And so the Brain Initiative really is a true collaboration between the Federal Drugs Agency, for example, and DARPA, who are involved in defense and military, and also IARPA, which is involved in intelligence, a number of other national bodies that are investing in this Brain Initiative to help us to understand the brain a bit more. But it is only 200 million Great British pounds. Do you think we need something more along the lines of the Human Genome Project, which, as you said, cost about 1.5 billion British pounds or $3 billion? Do we need more investment in order to make headway, as it were, in this brain initiative? I think we do, but we should understand that this is an annual appropriation and that when we look at the costing out of what we're doing, NIH says it's going to be about $4 billion over the next you know, 11 years. So it is a, a relatively expensive proposition. Breast cancer alone has had investments of the equivalent of 400 million Great British Pounds in the last year by America, and yet this only affects one in every 16 people. So there seems to be a disparity between the amount of funding that's available for cancer or breast cancer, for example, and mental health or brain conditions which affect one in four people um, worldwide. So why is there that disparity. We need to be investing more overall in medical and scientific research, period. So it's not a matter of doing less. We should be doing more in a lot of these categories. The difference in cancer is we've had so much success. We've beaten some cancers completely. We have 800 different treatments and pharmaceutical approaches uh, to deal with cancer. On the brain side, we're almost nowhere. Unlike other medical research, only 1% of what will work in an animal circumstance will work in a human being when we come to deal with brain illnesses. So the research doesn't translate well. In other areas, about 50% of the research animal to human translates. Where people see success, they're willing to invest more. And that's part of the challenge is that we have to be prepared to invest and fail in order to be able to invest and succeed. And I suppose generating the basic technologies that will allow us to understand how the, those 100 billion brain cells are connected with those 100 trillion of connections. So you're funding in 
how our brain works in the first place and how we can look at it should hopefully generate more funding for new treatments. We've been studying the brain of uh, flies for decades, and we can't tell you exactly how they work or a mouse brain. We have a lot of work to do. The brain is an extraordinarily complex piece of machinery. The former president of Israel said that we have these human brains and it's allowed us to build supercomputers, but it hasn't given us enough information yet to understand how our own brain works. And we have to kind of turn inwardly and focus on this if we're going to solve some of these challenges. So in terms of the Human Genome Project, some companies have filed patents for um, intellectual property for the genetic information that's come out of it. Do you think the same thing might happen with information about our brains and behavior? Well, litigation is part of a civilized society in which people who have different points of view end up in courts of law to try to settle them. So it could happen, but it shouldn't in any way dampen our enthusiasm. And I think at the end of the day, what we need to be doing from government finance resource research is to make sure that it's open and available to everyone uh, and that no one has any intellectual property control over it. Congressman Shaka Fatah. I next met with Professor Henry Markham, who is leading the Human Brain Project in Lausanne, Switzerland, where the European Union have invested almost £1 billion to develop technologies with the goal to simulate the human brain on a supercomputer. I started by asking Henry why this whopping investment is happening now, what it hopes to achieve, and if he thinks it will be successful. Well, the goal of the project is threefold. One is to establish the technology that we need to integrate data from the genetic level all the way to the behavioral le level. We do that using computer models. The second goal is to be able to analyze clinical data and to cluster it so that we can have a much more objective way of classifying brain diseases and point to targets so that we will be able to develop drugs more effectively giving better tools to the pharmaceutical industry so that they can actually re-engage in discovering of new drugs. And the third initiative is to uh, develop new kind of computing technologies based on how the brain functions. We are largely a software initiative, building tools to get to this future. The future that we see of understanding the brain is to be able to understand it as an integrated system. Um, we spoke earlier with the congressman on the American Brain Initiative. Now, will you be working in synergy, in collaboration with the American-funded project, or will it be more like a, a space mission or competition, if you like? I think that there's no time for competition in the brain. There's time for collaboration. Collaboration is essential. The problem is too vast, too complex, it's too diverse, too specialized, that we cannot afford to approach the brain in isolation, in a silo. We absolutely have to collaborate. In terms of the U.S. initiative, they will be developing technologies that will allow you to experimentally map the brain and get a much deeper understanding of the actual structure of the brain. In terms of the Human Brain Project, we will have the tools that will allow integrating that data in a much more effective way in the context of all the other data being generated around the world. So it's entirely complementary. And how will you ensure that there is synergy and um, collaborative complementary research going on? How will you facilitate that? The direction is to establish what we see as a global network of brain initiatives. 
where different countries, the Japanese, are launching a brain initiative around the non-human primates. The Chinese are launching an initiative also by the end of the year. Um, uh, the Australians, Canadians. We think that many countries are going to be raising the priority for brain research, built on this momentum established by the U.S. Brain Initiative and the European Brain Initiative. This collaboration framework is something that would allow much easier implementation between scientists. There's a, an open data policy. This is one of the key things that we see as an impediment to success, is that we actually have to make data that is being collected by scientists all over the world open to all. So that is not, nobody's going to own data. It's going to be a community resource worldwide, international resource. And I believe the US Brain Initiative has it in their mandate to make the data open. So, of course, scientists come up with inventions, new algorithms, new analysis methods, and they will file patents on those particular ones, and they will drive commercial industries. If it's a new target for a disease, there will be initiatives around that. And hopefully that does spark an industry around the basic and clinical science of the brain. And Henry, your goal is to create a human brain using a supercomputer. Could you flip your results the other way around and turn our iPhones into a cognitive thinking being? Flipping it around, of course, with that, we will have a deep understanding of circuitry, of mechanisms, principles of operation, of computing that we aim and we will use them to implement them into computer chips. These are, however, vastly reduced forms of the brain. They're not going to be anything like a brain on a chip for many, many decades, perhaps centuries. So they will be powerful, the same way a calculator can do better th a calculation than we can. This does not mean that they are more advanced than human beings. It just means that we are making certain kinds of analyses much more accessible and put them on your iPhone of the future. Henry Markham and also joining the discussion are two people who are involved in a special commission advising Barack Obama how neuroscience findings may influence society to preempt some of the ethical issues that are raised by the results. Now. I'm Stephen Hauser. I'm a member of the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. So there are a whole a host of issues that the commission and society at large needs to undertake and tackle. These include such areas as brain privacy, particularly as our imaging tools become more sophisticated, cognitive enhancement, things like personality, uh, sociability, uh, violent impulses, etc. Et so you're describing things like, for example, taking chemicals in order to alter how smart we are, our IQ, or even taking chemicals or some kind of brain electrical stimulation that may alter how moral we are, and also imaging techniques that could tell whether we are, for example, lying or telling the truth. Yes, although I would make the point that at the current time, all of these technologies have only incremental value. What we need to have is a twofold mission. First, to communicate clearly the true value of the therapies that we now have available, and second, anticipate and prepare for those that will perhaps be transformational 
but that are not yet currently available. And it was mentioned during the meeting today that there's a case of a patient who had an electrical stimulation to his nucleus accumbens, kind of pleasure reward area of the brain. And he had control of how, how much that area was being electrically stimulated. And so he kind of lied about how much he was stimulating it in order to give himself lots and lots and lots of pleasure. So this brings into um, issue kind of who has control over the application of some of these findings. Would it be the general doctor or would it be the patient themselves? Hi, I'm Walter Koroshetz. I'm the acting director for the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. I think that's a really important uh, question. In the worst case scenario, which I think you were hitting on, is that the device becomes an addictive stimulation to the brain. So cocaine, narcotics, they are addictive because they affect certain brain structures. And those same type of problems one could get into with stimulation as one would with drugs. So one issue with brain stimulation is that there may actually be effects that were unanticipated. And so a contract between the patient and the physician, I think, is very important to put down the parameters about who is going to be controlling, what is the purpose of the device. But there is you know, a precedent there when we give people opiates for pain, there is a contract about what is the, what are the risks of extended use. And I think those same kind of conversations would have to go on with regard to brain stimulation as well. And there was also mention of the possibility in the future of having biomarkers, so biological markers, for how intelligent someone may become when they grow up and whether they may even be a good match for marrying another person, almost like a personality biomarker test. Is this really feasible for the future? And if so, what can we do to consider the ethics of this information now? You know, there are different types of people, but so far that is a kind of a gestalt that we have. But the basis of that gestalt is related to our brain circuitry. So as we are able to interrogate brain circuitry, we are going to be much more predictive about what makes us different from another person, how we cluster, and what that information should be used, I think, is uh, uncharted territory, and discussions need to be started now. I would, however, say, as many of the technologies we're talking about are new, there are precedents. So IQ tests, for instance, have been validated in millions of people to develop this intelligent quotient which is associated with certain behaviors and successes. And we have come to some kind of a, a way of using those in education and in life. And so I think that's the early precedent that is going to just have to be expanded as we get into these new tools. Stephen. Yes, I think another very interesting area is where the boundaries are between maintaining function, alleviating disease, and enhancing function. The boundaries are not always crystal clear. A circuit that is responsible for pleasure can also be a critical clue to understanding the circuitry of craving, addiction, and multiple other adversive behaviors. Another issue that was raised was smart drugs, or cognitive enhancers, traditionally used on prescription to help those with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, with focus and attention, or to help boost memory for those with dementia. These drugs are now also being bought off-label 
over the internet by students hoping to achieve a higher grade in their exams. One in ten students at Cambridge University, for example, admit to taking them. Scientists have no idea what the long-term effects of these drugs might be on the healthy adolescent brain. We discuss the issues surrounding smart drugs, starting with Henry. You know, I think what we don't appreciate about the brain is that it's not like the heart or the liver or the kidney. It is an organ on a trajectory. It's like a rocket that is moving through life. And, and actually anything you do deflects the rocket's direction. If you don't understand that, then you don't, you don't feel immediately where your brain is going to go because you're taking some kind of drug. But you could actually end up in a completely different trajectory. And I think that it is really important that we understand that tampering with the brain to change its direction could have very, could have very deep consequences. Stephen. Dr. Markham's point is, is extremely important. We need to recognize that all of the technologies and even traditional drugs that we're speaking about today are likely interim products that will be replaced by more selective and perhaps less invasive approaches and that a key ethical need is to be able to identify these long-term benefits and risks because we are living for many decades, hopefully, particularly uh, when we consider uh, administering these therapies to a youngster. This is another great opportunity of these two initiatives to begin to have the, the capability to pool health outcomes-related data across many individual databases to connect interventions with long-term outcomes in ways that we never could have before. Walter. Yeah, just to add, the issue of education of the populace is uh, just so important uh, because, I mean, I think already we've seen groups that can try and take advantage of a message that is not mature and yet recruit large numbers of people to to join their efforts with the promise that they can enhance brain function. And it's something that uh, I think the, the populace might grab onto unless they are educated about risk benefits and, and not being duped in, in many instances. And it's also important to get this discussion going now when Dr. Markham's iPhone comes out and people are wearing them constantly to uh, inform my interaction with other human beings, for instance, or to inform my brain about exactly how I should be feeling or behaving at this point in time. Those tools that are coming, if the discussion is, is not held five to ten years beforehand, then it'll be a lot of confusion, potentially a lot of backlash even, when they actually do come into play. And finally, Stephen, so the issue of education. Are you recommending to the president that um, there's a flurry of scientists that go into schools to talk about issues of the brain and what, how we understand the brain? How are we addressing this issue with the public? This is a multifaceted strategy. It needs to be, and certainly in the United States, public education remains a huge problem. Um, so it certainly includes asking scientists to come and speak to different groups of public stakeholders, from young school children to people living in assisted care facilities. But an equally important part of that is that scientists learn how to communicate a message effectively, simply, and clearly. We are going to propose to the president numerous ways to 
improve public discourse around science and neuroscience in particular. And as Dr. Koroshetz stated so clearly, also to advise on ways to deal with the baloney in the media. And are there ways to have a fact check to mobilize technology in order to provide access for all of us into the most reliable interpretations of neuroscience discovery? I think the media is potentially one of the biggest dangers in this whole thing because they do tend to propagate a lot of the baloney and it is important to separate that out. In the European Human Brain Project, one of the things we're doing is to actually uh, work with science museums. There are about 3,000 science museums around the world and we're working with them to how, how we can establish a permanent uh, area in all science museums around the world. And we're already discussing with the U.S. Brain Initiative how we can all work together and all initiatives in different countries to use this format to try to get people to, to get the information about how the brain works, about diseases so you can demystify some of the brain diseases, about the kind of technologies that are out there, and to get it into a, a format where the public can engage with it and actually get a deeper understanding. Stephen. And maybe one additional area is the importance for those of us in the neuroscience community to communicate effectively and uh, clearly with policymakers. In the past, there has sometimes been the promise or the hype, even within the neuroscience community, the optimism that deliverables that uh, maybe were not achieved might be achievable for initiatives that would then be supported by the government. And it's very important that neuroscientists modulate down the hype along with the rest of us. Well, that's all we have time for in this special episode of Naked Neuroscience, reporting from the International Neuroethics 2014 meeting and hosted at the AAAS, so the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Washington. DC. Thanks to all those who took part. Congressman Shaka Fatar, Henry Markham, Stephen Hauser and Walter Karshetz. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. They're funding brain research and we'll be asking, should robots replace humans in the front line for warfare? Should governments wipe their secret service agents' memories clean after they've completed their missions? And should we implant positive memories into veterans who return from combat? Join us again for this special Naked Neuroscience series to open your mind. Thank you.